Hello and welcome back to the Comeda Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Nick Carciopolo. Uh, this is the podcast where we take an extended pause to consider something unique about our world through the lens of communication research. And today we'll be focusing on the theory of symbolic interactionism. And today's look into symbolic interactionism is supported by a frequent sponsor of our show, No One. Now, you may remember in the last episode of this show, we talked about the difference between an objectivist approach and an interpretivist approach and what those things mean, how people who see the world through those lenses interpret things differently, conduct their research differently, decide uh, what, what a truth about the world is differently based on their approach to research. And starting today, um, what you should be doing with every theory we encounter is looking at it through that lens. Is this an objectivist theory? Is this an interpretivist theory? What sorts of observations about the world is this theory advancing? So after doing the reading today and interacting with the podcast, there are three questions that you should ask yourself and be prepared to answer for our class. And one is describe the three premises of symbolic interactionism. Okay, that's not really a question, but there are three things that you should keep in mind. The first of which is, what are the three premises of symbolic interactionism? That one was actually a question. The second, uh, be familiar with the general terminologies included in the theory, such as the generalized other, looking class self, uh, things of that nature. And third, um, take some time to apply symbolic interactionism to your day-to-day -day lives. So before we jump into things today, I just want to give you a background of the man who created the theory, George Herbert Mead. Uh, he was born in Massachusetts in 1863. Um, he ended up working in the University of Chicago. He was uh, in the Department of Sociology. He was in the philosophy department. And this is where most of his work was done. Um, and this is a natural place for him to be for this sort of work because his work extended on things um, from various disciplines like psychology, like philosophy, like sociology. Um, all of this, this research and thinking that people were doing on the concept of what is the self and what constitutes the self, right? Not a small question. Um, and as it turns out, his answer, uh, symbolic interactionism, is not a small answer either. Um, after his death in 1931, his students got together and decided that his work should be published. So he never published his work on this when he was alive, and he didn't even have a name for these collections of his thoughts. Um, so his students, uh, particularly Herbert Blumler, um, further developed this theory and coined the phrase symbolic interactionism to describe it. So what even is this concept? I feel like when I was an undergrad and I did these readings, I, I could have read this exact, exact chapter three times and had just as much of an understanding of what symbolic interactionism was as before I read it, um, which hopefully doesn't say much about me uh, and does say more about the complexity of the theory at hand. So after doing the reading, think about how you would describe this to a friend if you were you know, sitting with a friend in an elevator waiting to get off at your floor um, and you mentioned that you were covering symbolic interactionism in class and they asked you what it was, what would your answer be? You may find it difficult to give a one-sentence answer of what symbolic interactionism is. Now, if we were to give it a go, it might be something like, um, symbolic interactionism is the process of interacting with others in a social world, which leads to the formation and generation of meaning, uh, which then leads to how we act in that world. 
So we mentioned earlier that Mead's thinking on this issue um, is in response to work in other fields trying to identify what is the self. Um, and the way Mead saw it, he saw the self as a social product that's defined and developed through social actions. And that the goal of all of our interactions is to create some sort of shared meaning. So how do we apply this in our own lives? I, I think a better question is how don't we apply this in our own lives? Because you could analyze almost any situation through the lens of this theory. So let's say you go to the food court and it's taco day. Already you're super pumped because of course you are, it's taco day. Uh, and you're interacting with the person who's serving the tacos. It's either bean tacos or pork tacos. Now think about your own behavior in that interaction. Do you say hi? Do you smile? Do you make eye contact? Do you ask how their day is? Or do you treat it as a transactional service where that person is there to serve you the food and you are there to get the food, so you say, bean taco, please. Of course, there are other factors that come into play in this situation, like how long the line is behind you or how busy or frazzled the person who's serving the food looks, but you get the idea. The way we act in any given situation is determined by the meaning we ascribe to that situation. And the meaning that we ascribe to that situation is informed by all of our social interactions. So let's break all of those components down a little bit further uh, and talk about the three principles of symbolic interactionism, meaning, language, and thinking. So people act towards people or things based on the meaning that they assign to those people or things. So if meaning is something that has to be assigned, then who assigns it? That's right, everybody involved in that interaction is responsible for that shared meaning making. And our concept of meaning is central in our lives because it informs how we act in certain situations. And the second principle is language. So meaning arises out of social interaction and the way we largely interact is through our language. Language being a series of symbols that helps us identify meaning. You can see how these are all related to one another, right? You can't talk about one without talking about the other principles. So giving a name to something helps assign meaning to that thing. Um, you see examples of this when there are words in one language for which another language doesn't have, even have a concept for what that thing is. So if we don't have a way to describe something, it's often even difficult to think about it in the first place. So of course we all know that language is symbolic, but I'd like to give you a specific example that kind of helps, helps demonstrate this. So I like to take my dog for walks in the evening. Um, she's a pit bull mix, she's about 55 pounds. She has a pretty intimidating silhouette um, so when people see her, they often scurry across the street pretty quickly. She's the sweetest dog you'll ever meet. Um, problematically, she wants to be friends with everybody she sees. So if she sees someone walking on the street, she'll tug on the leash trying to get them. Um, and it's not that she's trying to get them, right? She's trying to get to them, but they don't know that. They see a big pit bull struggling at the leash, trying to get at them and maybe their little yappy dog and they get afraid, understandably. So there's a couple ways that we can use symbols to reduce people's fear of our dog. Uh, so we just don't have problems when we're taking her for walks at night. One, she has a pink collar and a pink harness and a pink leash. She's all decked out, so she looks cute and non-threatening. Uh, that's pretty symbolic. So if, you, if you're under streetlight, maybe you see that. Um, otherwise, it's still dark out and maybe you don't see the pink collar. Uh, and the second is, is through her name, using her name as a symbol. So her name is Toasty, which is a sweet name. So if I'm like, Toasty, no, come on, Toasty. Um, people maybe aren't necessarily as afraid as they would be if she had like a mean, intimidating pit bull name. 
um, I don't know what's a what's a mean name like like beef like hey beef no beef beef get over here right that's a it's a little bit different than say toasty come on toasty no and the third principle is thought where in conversation people decide how to respond to others based on the socially constructed symbols we use in language so if you put these all together meaning language thought we have this kind of convoluted interconnected puzzle that in Mead's mind describes what it is to be human, describes the self. So the self is a social construct, according to Mead. Now that we have some of the basics down with these principles, um, I think it's time to introduce you to someone who will become a recurring villain in this podcast. Now let me tell you a little bit about this person. This person is rude. This person is self-interested and self-absorbed. This person is politically polarizing. This person is only interested in financial policy that will benefit themselves. And quite frankly, I don't think I'm stretching the truth when I say this person has likely committed crimes against humanity. This person is 45 years old, and this person is my sister. I'm sure you can empathize with this. Every time I go home, every time I see my sister, we tend to slip into the same old patterns. We bicker with one another. We argue with one another. We fight, usually over stupid small things. And it feels like this pattern that's inescapable. Now, Mead would recognize this right away. He'd say, oh, yeah, that's, that's easy. That's a self-fulfilling prophecy. So we all know what a self-fulfilling prophecy is colloquially, right? You expect something to happen, and therefore it does happen. But what does it mean in the context of this theory? Well, let's think about it. Meaning, language, thought. We tend to slip into similar patterns with, you know, our family, our mothers, our fathers, our sisters, our brothers, uh, our friends, largely because we inhabit a particular role in their world. They inhabit a particular role in our world. And we kind of expect people to behave in a certain way. We have those expectations. They often do behave in that way, and they also expect us to behave in a certain way. Some of these things can be brought about linguistically through triggers. Um, so my sister habitually calls me a brat, which started when we were children and continues to this day. And when she uses words like that, you know, it kind of sets off a chain reaction in terms of uh, how our interactions proceed at that point. Think about the roles that you inhabit with your family and your friends. Do you tend to fulfill a certain role in your friend group? Is it different in college and high school when you go back and visit your high school friends? Do you find yourself acting in ways that, you know, maybe it kind of bothers you. You, you don't act that way with your college friends, but you kind of slip into the same roles that you used to when you were in high school. Well, that's a good example of a self-fulfilling prophecy in symbolic interactionism. And I guess the good news from a personal level is seeing things through this lens is the first step in correcting any behaviors that you don't want to engage in anymore or interactions that you'd like to change. So I've been trying to change things with my sister. You know, her behavior still sets me off because only only one of us is actively trying to change things. Um, and sometimes I still do find myself completely criticizing her for all of her ridiculous life choices and the way that she chooses to raise her children. But on the flip side, I can very often control those things and not engage with her when she tries to slip back into the same old patterns that we used to inhabit. 
And I don't think she's actively trying to do that, right? She's just used to fulfilling those roles and used to me fulfilling those roles since we were children. And without actively thinking about it, without assessing our behaviors through this lens or through a similar theoretical lens, it's kind of hard to escape things that you might want to move away from. Now, one part of that story we may need to spend a little bit more time on is the symbol manipulation present in the word brat. Um, so when my sister uses that word, it doesn't really work for anybody else, but when my sister uses that word, it usually sets off some sort of chain reaction that ends in an altercation between the two of us. Uh, and I'm sure you can think of the same thing with your friends or your family. A particular use of symbols that kind of frames the meaning through which you experience the world, which leads to a particular reaction. And we see this in politics all the time, symbol manipulation for personal gain or political gain. Uh, so when the president of the United States decides to call a global pandemic the Wuhan flu or the Chinese flu, he's manipulating this symbol as a part of his opposition to a particular country, maybe to um, pursue his own trade war ends or something like that, right? But manipulating language in a way to change people's feelings and perceptions about something. Now, I think there's two more important concepts to discuss in relation to symbolic interactionism, and those are the looking glass self and the generalized other, which are related to one another. So Mead dismissed the idea that we could gain any insights about ourselves or our lives or our interactions through introspection. He believed that anything we learn about ourselves is through taking this imaginary perspective of the generalized other. So our perceptions of self are the result of assimilating perceived viewpoints and judgments of relevant others. So this idea of the looking glass self, looking glass just being an old fashioned word for mirror, is that when we are looking at ourselves in the mirror, when we are trying to learn something about ourselves, we're not doing it from our own perspective. We're doing it from the perspective of imagined important others. So the generalized other is just this composite mental image of a person or people based on, you know, social expectations that we have. So that'll do it for today's episode. Uh, please tune in next time where I share more embarrassing stories about myself and my sister. Um, that may or may not be true. I'm not sure off the top of my head what next time's topic is, but this is not the last time you've heard from the villain that is my sister. So thank you for joining me in this comedy, this extended pause. I hope the concept of symbolic interactionism is a little more clear than it was maybe 15 minutes ago. And as we're preparing to meet together for next time as a class, I would encourage you to consider your favorite songs through the lens of symbolic interactionism. What are the particular circumstances and interactions that lead your favorite artists to come to some sense of meaning and convey that meaning to you through song? 